Welcome to the Indian Science Show. A podcast where we talk about Indian stuff, science, and different worldviews. I'm Turtle. And I'm Annie. Thanks for joining us. Enjoy the show. Okay, you should be all set. Sorry about that. My apologies. It's, it's exciting. We have so many people doing things and participating. There's a lot. So thank. Well, thank you. I, I understand the technicals of Zoom can be uh, the you learn as you go. From my experience. Oh yeah, uh, yeah. Having a kind of teleworked the last year, it's been definitely interesting. And I think teleworking the last year in COVID definitely kind of. Um, highlighted the importance for the episode we are going to talk about today for sure yeah definitely and so we we wanted to just start with a, a, a definition of ethnobotany and then we're going to go into this notion of on the honorable harvest and although robin is the one that published thing some literature about this and wrote about it in her book we are coming at it from a perspective of what we agree on instead of saying that this is some kind of a one-size-fits-all approach. So we're going to explore that. And then we'll relate that to our own stories and how we have seen the honorable harvest manifest in our own lives, as well as how this relates to the idea of place and connecting to place. And after that, we're just going to quickly go over a little bit of springtime tips that we think is really are really important for people not just that are coming to montana but that live here and because we don't always interact with the bears and we don't always go out but for people that are new to that kind of stuff and for educators this these kind of tips can go a long way to teaching kids and giving them a little bit of confidence to go and interact with plants and yes then we'll open it up for questions after that so with that being said, Annie, you want to read the definition? Yeah, I mean, it only seems fitting that uh, we had a pre we have a previous episode um, called ethnobotany. We have a different definition there. Um, I think ethnobotany holds a personal connection to both of us, so we've found a hard time finding a definition that was more up the alley for what we we like to talk about ethnobotany about. So the Forest Service came up with a great one. It is ethnobotany is the study of how people of a particular culture and region make use of indigenous parentheses native plants. So again, ethnobotany is the study of how people of a particular culture and region make use of indigenous parentheses native plants. And there was two words in particular that stood out to Turtle and I when talking about that, and that is culture and region. Um, it's really hard not to talk about culture if you're not including the landscape to which these cultures have been kind of built upon for generations since time immemorial. Mm -hmm. And this speaks to really fundamental aspects of human perception and human knowledge, which is the space and time aspect of it, where culture helps transmit knowledge through time. And the region part of this really encapsulates this idea of place, which we'll explore more in detail later. And yeah. that all relates to the honorable harvest as we see it in, in our own region. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the harvest, the honorable harvest um, protocol or principles, you know, really are kind of this practical application for how to do ethnobotany on the land. And it's also a kind of a great 
stepping stone for people that are moving from rural er from urban areas into rural areas like we are seeing in Montana where we have an influx of people coming in brand new landscapes, giant landscapes, um, you know, some don't have service. So then how do you reintegrate into a land where you're used to having a city and urbanized area? That's a tough one too. And again, speaking back to the space and time aspects of knowledge, and especially when we talk about things like ethnobotany, that seems to be a huge thing that differentiates the type of issues that people are faced with, whether we live in a rural setting or in an urban setting. And that has a huge effect on culture, as well as the regionality of the way ethnobotany would play out and the way an honorable harvest can play out. And the way, what I really like about this is it's a very simple breakdown of some of these really complex ideas that, mm -hmm. take, that took generations upon generations to learn. And that's why the culture is so important is that's how we learn through over generations. Mm -hmm. So it's really fascinating yes. stuff to me. It is, you know, and it really focuses on sustainability with the land. And, and I think this conference is really focusing on, on being sustainable with the land and moving forward in, in a way where we can not only look at the land as, as kind of a separate part of us, but also bringing the land to us and kind of moving forward in, in a kind of integrated lifestyle. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think that we are just going to go over the, there is what, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Ten principles or protocols. Um, we'll kind of give a quick example for each one just to kind of help people because some of these are, like Turtle had said, they are, um, kind of broad that will encompass all of the knowledge that had been passed down um, because Robin won't claim any of this as her own idea. Um, like Jess had said in the beginning as well, I think Legend and I focus a lot on what our ancestors have taught us and the oral traditions that we have learned um, through our short time, 30-ish years, I guess, in the, in this world. So um, the first one, Legend. So the first of these principles is to ask permission. And that can, there's a lot of these can be misinterpreted, but and one example of that is, is to think about intentions and whether speaking it verbally or it just in your head, but to ask permission is to set your own personal intention with these plants. And we can get into all sorts of really interesting botanical studies that I've come across about how plants respond to their environments and stuff. But, um, that would be a whole nother episode. Second one is, uh, yeah, the second one is never take the first, never take the last. So an idea, an example is if you're in a field and you can't see any more of a particular plant that you're looking for, um, don't pick that plant. Don't harvest that plant, move to an area that you see it may be a more abundant um, you know, and if you never take the first, never take the last, you want to make sure that you are providing these plants for future generations and for the able for the oral traditions to keep being passed down. Mm -hmm. And the third is to harvest in a way that minimizes harm. And that is, again, a little hard to wrap your mind around. So the way I think of that is to not be too aggressive with plants, although disturbance is an important part of ecology and nature, it's too much is something that 
plants won't recover from. And another example I've heard is huckleberry picking can be really tedious. And I've heard that some people will just take the whole plant, which again, that's going against one of these principles. And again, to me, it just seems like a mean thing to do. Yes. Um, the next one is take only what you need and leave some for the others. Um, I, I think that we have have definitely come to areas where we have joint harvesting sites, not only with our tribe, but multiple tribes. Um, and so it is important to remember that, you know, speaking of huckleberries, like as much as you hate to leave all those huckleberries behind because of how delicious they are, um, they do provide a cultural keystone for many native communities within the area in Montana. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and then the next one is to use everything you take. And to me, I was raised to not be wasteful. And that's, again, very unnatural in a fundamental way, because it doesn't seem like anything is wasted in nature. Even what we see as waste is a whole ecosystem of its own accord. So why throw away an opportunity? Uh, So just don't be wasteful is the way I think of that. Mm-hmm. And it's also, uh, again, going back to the relationships, these plants aren't just resources to be used, but there's a relationship there as well. Mm-hmm. Yes. And then also the next one is a, another kind of decisive one. Um, take only, which is given to you, um, can be taken many different ways, but kind of how legend and I took it was with the give and take, there is a respect and responsibility to how you interact with places Um, So it is making sure that you understand the full historical context of that place, that location. Um, You know, you are understanding what you are taking and giving. Um, In every giving situation, there is always a take. So making sure you're understanding the balance that comes with that. Mm -hmm. And then speaking of balance, the, the next one is share it as the earth has shared it with you. And the way I interpret that in the, an example that I can see in the world is the, the continuity of how energy transfers between ecosystems or how the water cycle will bring one water molecule all the way through a, a whole system over a certain amount of time. And in our lives, we're, the earth is sharing with us in a very big way where we're breathing the air, we're drinking the water, and now that these plants that are growing from the earth are giving their lives for us. And so it makes sense to me that you would pass that gift on. And this is part of the reciprocity aspect of this whole set of principles. And then the next one is be grateful. I I think that kind of plays into the part of the first one about asking permissions where your intentions are important. Um, So it's not only to be grateful for the plants, but also to remember to be grateful for teachings. Um, If anybody has taught you how to be on the land, um, be grateful for them. Be grateful for the lessons that you will learn while you are interacting with these places, with these plants. Um, Making sure you are are grateful in in multiple senses while you are out there harvesting and and being connected to places and and spaces. Mm -hmm. And then reciprocate the gift. And I noticed there's definitely a lot of, there's a recurring, there's recurring themes in a lot of these. So reciprocate the gift in a way is, is like restating the one I just talked about before and just reiterating that these things aren't really belonging to us. And this is also a part of the culture aspect of things is the way I've been taught about culture by my ancestors and 
my aunt, my relatives, my family is that it's not ours. These are gifts from the plants and from the animals, from the rivers and the mountains and these specific places even have particular gifts that go with them. So giving that back in some way is a way of keeping that flowing. And since I was little, I've been super into physics and a lot of uh, science fiction. And I always thought that's kind of like keeping the energy flowing between <laughs> systems. If you don't, then uh, bad things happen. <laughs> right. Well, and I think that kind of leads into this 10th one and last one, um, which is sustain the ones who sustain you and the earth will last forever. Um, I think this kind of ends the secular process um, as indigenous knowledge tends to be circular. It makes sense that the last one will kind of fully encompass all of them. So if you, you if we use it, it will stay with us, but if we don't, it will go away. Um, you know, I think that that encompasses every single part of these different protocols or principles that are within the honorable harvest. Um, and, it, and it's what Ledger and I have, have kind of been taught all of our life about making sure that, that we sustain the resources and the land so that future generations can have it. And we've been so great to have a have had, had tribe that has focused so much on environmental con, uh, conservation that it has been the forefront of our minds, at least for me, since I was born. Me too. And I was raised again to believe bears are my brothers. And I'm, so I'm, I'm a, what my mom would say, I'm a mutt. We're a bunch of mutts. We're, so we have a very diverse background, but culturally the most, the strongest identity I have is Bikuni. And so th th that's where I spent a lot of my time as a youth. That's where a lot of my memories are. And those are the, the stories and the places and the ceremonies, but also the sound of the language, the smells, all this stuff comes into it. And so to kind of ground some of this stuff so in some real life stories, we're going to share how, a story each and how we see the honorable harvest or one of our favorite examples of it in reality. Because from my point of view, a lot of these principles can be misinterpreted and or misrepresented as, a, um, as less than concrete. But the, I, I want to reiterate that this is a very practical way. In a, in a sense, it's like the, the methodological recommendations that are coming from some of the some of the principles that have come out of indigenous science in all these different communities. And I gotta definitely thank Robin Kimmerer because she's done work for decades to 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 do that. So the, it, it's really fascinating to see how all this is coming to a point where now uh, we have some of the words to be able to share some of this knowledge because when I was younger, I just didn't know how to talk about it. And I never really knew what traditional ecological knowledge was or indigenous science or any of this until I got into college. And then I got really into it, but it was something that I didn't know was a part of my life until I went to college. So. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I, I know Jess had mentioned it. Robin Kimmer is our current mentor and advisor at SUNY. Um, we, I know we are super grateful for her to kind of help us guide us down a path that doesn't only focus on 
uh, an academic science point of view, but it also helps us to restory our academic views to incorporate our indigenous knowledge into places, into stories and into our research. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I love your story and I know you're probably going to share yours, which I think is very vital, especially for this time of the year. Um, I think bears, um, they're it's springtime. So they are, we're going to have to learn how to share this land with them. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And so for, for my people and my family, especially, and uh, just in general, bears are really important. They showed us how, where to find food and medicine, how to get through the mountains. Uh, but there's a big misconception about bears that they're these big, cuddly, fuzzy creatures that just should be protected no matter what. And uh, it reminds me, and I, I thought about what story, because I have so many bear stories. I considered t- telling one about um, an experience I've had face-to-face with bears or uh, running into bears or when I was a little kid and getting scared of bears when I was with my siblings out by our, on our own. But instead, I'm gonna, what I'm going to share with you is a dream. And this dream is a way that I would like to help frame some of these tips for people about bears and interacting with bears here in Montana, at least. So the way it went is uh, a lot of my dreams start off with me hiking through the woods, being in the mountains, being on a creek. And that's where I was is I don't know where exactly, but it was this beautiful floodplain in a river. And I was walking through the river and I saw a, a bunch of bears up ahead. And at first I was afraid. And so I tried to avoid them, but I saw some noticed me and they were kind of blocking, trying to block my path. And so I went around to the other side of the river and I met a bear and it started talking to me. It wasn't talking English, but I could, it was like kind of tele- telepathy. Like I could hear its thoughts and it could understand my thoughts. And we had a conversation about these bears and it was warning me, you stay away from those bears. Those aren't good bears. And and I and that was it. That was the end of the dream. And when I I didn't really understand what that meant for a long time. But um, has anybody? I I know um, a lot of people probably have seen or heard of Timothy Treadwell or the Grizzly Man. And so I got a lot of opinions about what happened with that that guy. Uh, but what what I realized in that dream is there's this notion that bears are all the same, but just like us, they have a huge array of personalities. And some bears are just nasty, mean, ugly, and very likely because something happened, but very similar to people, I suspect it could be just that they're born that way. So that dream taught me about that. And because when I was younger, I I did have that fuzzy idea of bears in my head. And I maybe got really lucky because I have had a lot of run-ins with bears and none of them have been negative. And I think a lot of that has to do with one of these principles of respect where you, you respect and a part of that respect is fear and understanding and things like that. Having dreams that are based in places, teaching very specific principles or ingraining them in my consciousness is a huge part of the way this honorable harvest is for at least myself and the way I've been taught to see indigenous knowledge because it uh, a lot of these different principles are very value-based, very more, more, they're moral or ethical in nature. 
And not everybody has the same values. Not everybody has the same ethics. And so that's the way I, but it's important to be clear on those things. And dreams have been, I've always been a big part of the way I've been taught to interpret the world. That, that it's not necessarily a, a factual diagram that you can use, but it's informative and it's another data set that you can use to analyze and try and understand what's going on around you. And it's a, an awareness thing. Yeah. And, and I do think it's really important that our teachers aren't only humans, but teachers come in a variety of form. Um, I know we've done an episode on Glacial Lake Missoula, which kind of shows you of, of like water and glaciers being a very powerful teaching force. Um, you talk about bears. Uh, definitely, I have a love for bumblebees. And I think bumblebees end up being great teachers as well. I am I'm on the train for saving the bumblebees and saving pollinators. Um, I, I think pollinators itself are very vital to our harvesting and making sure that our ecosystem is staying sustainable. I, I mean, they are able to, um, you know, pollinate a lot of other, uh, they're able to get around um, as Pat Hurley likes to call them promiscuous. They, they are very promiscuous with the flowers that they do tend to go towards. Um, you know, I, I think it does show that they are great teachers. And um, I may be a little bit later in, in the harvesting, being outdoors and, and really learning how to interact with the land. Um, my family has a lot of historic traumas in their lives um, that that kind of has has stopped this kind of transmissional knowledge that has been passed down. So over the last five to 10 years, my family has really made, especially my parents, to, um, to really actually learn about the land and really engage with the land in a different way. And um, I've had nothing but joy and happiness watching my parents, who my dad is a 75-year-old Vietnam vet who is a very tough native guy that is very stoic looking, doesn't say much unless, unless there's a point to what he's saying. And, um, you know, watching him like struggle and watching him overcome these traumas and like really learn how to reconnect with the land um, has been nothing but astonishing for me. And also my mom who has a lot of health issues, seeing her find healthy ways through interacting with the land and being with the land and, and storing plants having her own garden now. Um, it's very different than, than how I was raised and how my parents were raised as well. And I have one funny story about bees, actually. I went on a, um, we went to pick uh, lovage or husks as, as we call it um, in the Lolo National Forest area. And I went with a group of um, immersion schools. So it's a Salish based school of uh, kindergarten through eighth grade. <laughs> and, um, we, we were just sitting there. I was off on my own kind of picking my own. And, and then all of a sudden I hear this bunch of screaming. And unfortunately his kids have come across a beehive and they were getting stung. And so that their trip got cut short. And, and I think it, it showed for me the importance of always being observant in your areas, just like turtle was talking about, about bears, um, bees can easily be just as much as an issue as, as anything else. And so being observant and understanding that every part of the ecosystem has a purpose 
everything is secular. Everything has a purpose. Um, I'm a firm believer in forest gardens and, and kind of seven layers of, of understanding that um, everything from the tall subalpine firs all the way down to moss has an extreme importance in that ecosystem. And um, I think just being where we're located in the Flathead Reservation, we have had the Mission Mountains in our backyard for most of our lives. Um, Turtle has also had some awesome mountains in the Blackfeet country. So um, both of us have been surrounded by this really vast outdoors, the Bob Marshall wilderness area, Ligia loves, um, that has really attached us in a way that is nothing but profound. And, and how then do you portray that profoundness to people that may not have the same historical context that Ledger and I have. And I think the Honorable Harvest itself is a great example for people to find that profound attachment and connected in connection to land. Yes. And in the end, a lot of the, and I know I've had a lot of conversations with my elders and then even uh, Neil, one of our advisors back at ESF about the, that it's practical, that it's very pragmatic and I would encourage anyone listening to look into native pragmatism. And it's one of the only distinct philosophies that came from North America. And this native pragmatism, especially the, a scholar uh, by the name of Pratt, he is arguing that it's a combination of that a lot of these values that are considered American were already here. And that it was a combination of the interaction of settler peoples and indigenous peoples for centuries. So it's a, it's a fascinating idea. And again, just practical. So that's the way I see a lot of this stuff is if it doesn't work, we, we don't really use it. And having gratitude in your life, for example, is very beneficial. And I, I for, for a long time, I was into um, kind of the coaching idea of coaching people and helping people be just figure out how to be their own version of what is the best version of themselves. And being grateful is one of those tools that helps us get through the hard times and see that the world is actually full of amazing things. And it's also full of darkness as well. So always having that balance and awareness in understanding that the it's a very complicated place and without things like culture and these kinds of cultural tools to be able to transmit some of this knowledge, though it can be really scary. And I think for young people, especially the mountains and the forest can get, can be scary. And I didn't really know how scared people could be of the forest until I went and lived in New York for a while and found out that some people are very terrified of even small patches of forest. And I didn't really understand that. And, but, uh, but then again, I started thinking about things in this kind of, this, and this is something that I've also been taught that things come in twos, that there's always a balance. And so I'm looking at this comparison between rural populations and urban populations and trees and patches of forest play a very different role in urban areas than they do in rural areas. And whereas in rural areas, we're thinking maybe there's a deer in there. Mm -hmm. I mean, maybe there's some berries in there or uh, depending on your upbringing, maybe there's a bear in there and I need to stay away. In an urban center, depending on how your up, 
you're raised and what part of the city you grew up in, that could mean crime. That could mean danger. So I didn't really understand those things when I grew up. I think because I'd never really, the biggest city I really spent time in as a child, beside on my own anyway, was Missoula. And that's not a very big city compared to these huge cities along the coast. So I think understanding is what I realized I learned a lot is uh, it's better to try to understand than it is to be right. Mm-hmm. And we have a lot to learn from each other, us people that live in, that grew up in the cities, but also people that live mm-hmm. in the countryside. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. And um, I think we're about coming up on 10 minutes. So I think we're just going to quickly go through some tips for being on the land. Um, I mean, we've already kind of talked about it, but just getting back into the land, um, looking out and seeing the sunshine. I found the first flower today where I am. So they are coming whether or not we like it. And I'm so happy. I know I'm happy. Um, I'm summer is coming and we're all ready for it. Um, but with that comes also the safety and, and remembrance that also I forget sometimes, um, that, that when you're being outdoors, um, the whole point is that there are other things outdoors as well. So how then do you commingle and also move forward in a sustainable way? So the ones that I have kind of talked about is already be observant um, and be observant in uh, many, many things. Um, definitely the, um, oh yeah, birds. Uh, we've had a weird summer winter here where our, some of our migratory waterfowls didn't leave. Um, so we've actually had some uh, kind of just hang around where we are. And so birds are coming back. We have meadowlarks. I'm, I'm hearing some singing, um, great signs. Uh, also some buttercups to Salish people are popping up as well. It's a great sign for spring. Um, so be observant. I mean, this is a great time that lets you know about springtime. You're, you're starting to see these signs of spring. Life's are coming. Soon there's going to be baby animals running all over the place. Um, definitely excited for that. But with that also comes snakes. We have a bunch of rattlesnakes over here. So make sure you're observant if you're on trails. They like to hang out on the sides. Um, also, if you're driving, don't, don't, don't run over the snakes that are on the sides of the roads. Um, also, yeah, coyotes. Um, you know, where I am located, we have tons of coyotes. Um, you know, coyotes are deading up right now. So they're going to start having, you know, their reproduction. And, and coyotes to Salish people are extremely, save the turtles, you know, extremely poor in coyotes amphibians, everything's starting to kind of pop up from, from that kind of dormant period. And so we're going to give you some quick tips to how to interact this next, uh, at least hopefully six months. Yeah. And one tool that I really like and seems to work well with kids is on, if you're on a trail or you're out somewhere um, engaging with things and there is a safety concern the what I like to say is hey don't just don't be a clown you look up down and all around that and then making the joke out and it's not like you're doing this and going in circles or anything but just paying attention and making sure you know what's behind you and that you're not leaving people but also cats that's if they're going to come on you that's where they're going to come from so you want to be paying attention to what's going on behind you even a bear can sneak up on people and like i said there are dangerous bears and some people call them uh, man eaters some people call them problem bears and uh, not all of them are what i would say maybe bad or mean but there are some out there and i know that 
this is something that's important. So bear safety is really critical, especially now that bear populations have been on the rise and they've pretty much fully recovered in this area. And so understanding the difference between grizzly bears and black bears is really important because their behavior is very different. And there's a little debate on this, but from my experience, it is very different. Black bears generally, when you surprise one or you come across one, they will run. A grizzly bear, on the other hand, if you surprise one, it's going to likely do one or two things. It'll maybe charge or stand up to get a better view of what's going on and or to smell some things. And, uh, and the way you deal with that is very different than a black bear. So if a black bear is charging you, it's likely that that's a predatory charge and it wants to eat you. If a grizzly bear is charging, it's less likely to be predatory. It still could be, but it's more likely to be defensive in nature where it's just telling you to get out of there. Um, it's warning you and to not run, to not have quick movements is really important to not be staring it right in the eyes, just looking at your feet, talking in a calm but firm voice. All of these come into play if you do happen to get charged by a grizzly bear. It's different for black bears. You want to do the opposite, almost similar to with a big cat, is you want to get big and loud and try and scare it away. And if it does get on you, you fight. You fight to the death with a black bear. With a grizzly bear, there's that saying, you curl up. I mean, easier said than done, I'm sure. I've never had that happen. Um, but just to protect your vital organs, your neck, and to play dead as best as you can. Um, because again, statistically, most of the time when a grizzly bears on you, it's going to uh, leave when it realizes the threat's gone. And then having bear spray, because statistically, again, that is far more effective than using a gun. And I know I'm not practicing my quick draw skills on the weekend, so I don't think a lot of other people are either. And pay, so you got to and with bear spray, you, the biggest concern is the wind. And so there's a lot. And I think there's a big responsibility in learning these things and understanding this stuff, especially if you're going to bring kids out. But uh, you got to do it in a way that's fun and not too scary either. So, uh, yeah. And there's always plants as well. So real quickly. Um, yes, real quickly. I know, Annie, you have some plant tips and there's certain plants oh, yeah. that, are, that are also dangerous. Well, I just know that we want to leave time for questions and we've already oh, got that's five right. minutes. You know, yeah. So I have a big problem with that. I tend to ramble okay. and ramble. So, lot, so. so let's just quickly plant safety, um, watch out for poison ivy, watch out for Western hemlock, know the poisonous plants that are around you. A lot of them will have some sort of either a, um, a plant that is non-poisonous that will look like a poisonous one. So make sure you are understanding harvesting before that. Um, and then learn about the place that you are building relationship with. Know the people that are there, reach out to people um, and just learn from the land. I mean, if you're not interacting with the land, uh, you, you won't be able to know. Uh, books will only tell you a certain much. Um, so start getting out and learning with the land. Yeah, time, time in places. That's yes. really what it comes down to. All right. Well, thanks for joining us, everybody. And thank you for inviting us here. Uh, we'd like to leave the rest of the time available for any questions. Yes. And to do that, I'm going to unmute or allow everybody to unmute themselves. Um, so you are free to use the chat or, and bear with me while I do that, um, or the chat, or you can unmute yourself. So there you go.
uh, I saw somebody had like a snake thing with kids. Um, one thing that I, I do as a professional wise when, when teaching kids about especially poisonous snakes um, is to take them out to a place where they may be able to see one, um, explain how to keep an eye out for them, explain why they like to stay on roads and trails, explain that they are cold blooded, that they need that kind to kind of keep themselves warm. So it'll kind of keep their eyes going and, and, keep them maybe a little bit less scared, explain that they have a purpose on the land that they are. They kind of help control populations of rodents, major purposes. Um, so I, I don't know if that was a quick question, but I, I did see that. Yeah. Snakes are cool. I love snakes. Somebody has asked in the chat, where can they find your podcast? Oh, perfect. Uh, it looks like someone yeah, dropped some the link. That was fast. Yeah. yeah. Okay. There you go. Never mind. There you go. And you can also just Google us at NDN Science Show. Uh, it's we're on iTunes. We're on Stitcher. We're on Podian or Podi. Yeah, Podian is where we host it. But also, what's the um? There's a real famous Podcasts. one. Yeah, yeah. Google. <laughs> Apple Podcasts. Yeah. <laughs> we I are have, all on I've there. Already, yeah. I've already cool. subscribed this morning. So, um, there's oh, another okay. question in the chat. Um. Your first principle of ask permission, can you talk about how best to do that? Yeah, I mean, I was always taught kind of later on that um, in order for the plant to know, you have to speak the plant's language. Um, and I think that just involves as kind of um, uncomfortable as that might be the first time. Um, but it also is just asking, talking to them, being like, is this okay? Can I, I'm going to harvest you. I will make sure to follow certain sustainable principles, um, that you go and then, or just say it in your head, do a little prayer, um, make sure that you are recognizing that you are about to take something that is extremely important to that plant. Mm -hmm. And this isn't something that I was really raised with, but, and so I was wondering how did, I'm curious where that came up. And uh, so, but what we do is like Annie said, is we, we pray and we offer something for us. It's tobacco, but again, there's, there's no monolith in Indian country. Everybody, every, there's differences among cultures. Some people don't use tobacco. Some people find junipers very, to be really important. Whereas for, for us, subalpine fir is really important. So there's all these differences in the, and it's very regional. So focusing in on just spending time in a place. And I think that first one is one of the, it's the first step to just slowing you down and getting you to start paying closer attention. So there's a lot of ways to do that. And, and it, it is a little funny, especially it, it's, it's especially awkward if you're sitting there talking to a flower and especially if you've never done that before. But again, it, it helps release some of these emotions and some of these ideas that you may not be considering. And it, it goes back to that time, slowing you down and moving more on a plant time scale so you can actually understand what you're dealing with here. Una. That's great. There's another question, if you don't mind. Um, Jess, is that okay? We have time. Okay, great. So the yeah, question is, as an educator from the city, I grew up with the with the, that fear of forest, how can I overcome my own fears about forest while teaching curriculum about nature? That is a really good question. And that's something maybe you have a, some advice on that, Annie, because I grew up being running around in the forest. I didn't start spending time alone in the forest until I was about 14, 15. 
But even that, that's pretty young f- for a lot of folks. For me, that's that's just kind of standard. So yeah. maybe you could talk about that and I can offer a little bit as well. Um, I think there is always going to be a fear to the unknown. Um, it's just something that um, as an Indigenous person that's late coming to find my own indigeneity, I have a big fear of, of am I worthy enough to even participate with these cultural plants in, in this cultural space? Um, and, and one thing that people have taught me Indigenous and non-Indigenous is making sure that you have a value system that is placed in in understanding that the forest is scary and big, but it also provides so many positive benefits. Um, and I would suggest maybe starting off with a um, a refuge kind of setting or a national park kind of setting, some kind of setting that has already geared towards having people involved with outdoor spaces, um, because you will have that kind of convenience of having a, a paved trail or already carved out trail um, with other people walking around. So it kind of will get that step to be out there. And then you could go to a little bit more remote spot. And then it's just consistency. It's just spending time with there. Um, you'll probably spend 10 minutes the first time. You'll kind of observe things. You'll hear sounds. You'll kind of freak out a little bit and you'll be like, okay, that was enough for the day. But don't don't act like that was a bad thing to do for only being in there for 10 minutes. Um, you will slowly build time as it goes on. I have a hard time being in very wide open prairie areas. I lived in Kansas for five years and I hated it. <laughs> that wide open spot just like drove me nuts. I'd like seeing mountains. Um, and so we all have a certain innate fear towards something new. And um, just always know that being consistent in, in kind of how you practice it Um if you find comfort in praying, I, I always smudge before I go out there just because it kind of adds a protection layer to me. So whatever you find comfort in, in religion or some sort of spirituality, keep that with you when you're out there. And I think that will help you move forward and, and gain that comfortability right away. Hmm. Sorry, my yeah. cats. <laughs> <laughs> that's, yeah, that's, that. I think that's a really good point that goes back to some of these principles of just spending time and i'm a big nerd for all sorts of different fields and psychology is one of them and i've heard a lot of psychologists say that that's one of the ways you overcome fear one of the best ones is willingly not by force but willingly introducing yourself in small doses to that thing you're afraid of and that's exactly what i think annie was getting at there and i would have this give you the same advice and a part of growing up and a part of becoming an adult for my family and my culture is there is a certain point where you do have to overcome fears. You have to go out and challenge yourself and do something on your own that is fearful. And often things we're fearful of are inherently dangerous. So taking these tools with you, the safety tips and things like that. And someone mentioned the apex predators and just really understand. And it gets me to one of the lessons my instructors in undergraduate school taught me is you always understand the biology of the organism you're studying. And that includes the whole diverse array of all the different predators we have to share the forest with. So understanding their behavior and just taking that responsibility on yourself is empowering. And in my life, the more I understand something, the less I fear it. And the more I have confidence that if something does come up, 
I can at least not panic and hopefully respond in a good way. Someone did, someone brought up Doug Peacock. Thank you. He is another, he's like kind of like the other side to this story. And he talked a lot about that kind of stuff that there's some bears that are just, you stay away from them. And Grizzly Years is a really good book. All of his books are really good. So anybody that hasn't read Doug Peacock, if you're living in Montana, it's almost required reading in my opinion. Um, and then another one about tobacco. Uh, I don't want, I don't really want to encourage people to necessarily be using tobacco as an offering. That's just what I used. And as growing up, it really is more about the, uh, that reciprocation and keeping that going. And so I've even left spit sometimes or a little piece of my hair, things like that too, or a little bit of your food for the day that you brought with you. Um, so there's, it's not really about the tobacco, but so I don't really have any recommendations for specific tobacco. Um, I just, if I am going to use it, I just grab some top from the store. <laughs> uh, uh, but some, depending on who you go to, whose lodge you're at, or, I mean, it really, again, it depends on where you're at more than uh, any specific thing. So that's why these principles are good because it's not saying you got to leave a certain thing, but just leaving something, giving, returning that gift in some way while you're there and, um, yeah, hopefully that answers the, those questions. Um, uh, insecticide, that's a good point. Uh, no, <laughs> that's not my reluctance. My reluctance is mostly philosophical in nature, but that's a really good point um, because that is a problem. And top, that's not really the most environmentally friendly tobacco to be leaving out there. So shame on me for that. Uh, it's just, a, the, again, a practical thing. I'm not out there leaving huge piles of top and I don't do it every single time. It's more of a way of setting your intentions. Like I was talking about earlier, it's you're setting your intentions. So it, that does a few things. It slows you down. It gets you to start paying more attention and it gets you start thinking more like a plant. Oh, no. And I, I think before we get too crazy, I think if, if anybody else has any questions, um, you can email us at uh, Indian Science Show at gmail.com. Um, Give us a little bit of time. We both work in school and kids, other other things. So um, we will try to get back to you or Facebook or Instagram. Um, definitely reach us throughout there. Um, and then do you want to talk about Patreon? Sure. Yeah. We're So right now we're, we have a PayPal. So on all of our show notes or on our web pages at the bottom, you can support us through PayPal. But we're currently in the process of set, launching a Patreon account, and we're thinking in the next two months we'll have that ready. We're sorting out all the details and business, and we want to launch it with a lot of content. So uh, pay attention for that, and we'll have more announcements on that as things come up. <laughs> and so, then I think the yeah. last the last thing we just want to leave all of our listeners to um, is a quote by Robin Kimmerer. Um, from the Braiding Sweetgrass book. Um, it is never take the first plant you find as it might be the last and you want the first one to speak well of you to the others of her kind. Thanks for joining us, everyone. If you like the episode, make sure you go to our iTunes page and you leave us a review. Yes. Give us a like. Yes, and five stars. Five stars. Just because Only five stars. Just because you, you want to. If you don't like iTunes, you can also follow us on our social media pages. Oh, yeah, and you can drop a comment or leave a review on there, too. Yep, mm -hmm. and we also have a website. Yes, 
We do. <laughs> and it's a really cool one called indianscienceshow.wordpress.com. But if you'd like to just access our site directly from the place that hosts it, it's the same thing, but indianscienceshow.podient.co. We would love to hear from you guys. Yeah. And Indian Science Show is spelled N-D-N-S-C-I-E-N-C-E-S-H-O-W.wordpress.com. Thank you for lending us your ears, and now you should go use your fingers and your eyes to go leave us a review. Yes. <laughs> <laughs>